the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to SoCal Live with Scott Furrow on 99.5 KKLA. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to Southern California, uh, Southern California Live. I almost said Southern California Alive. Glad to be alive here with you, and uh, most of you listening are alive, and that is good. And um, although to die is gain, the scriptures tell us, but uh, that should not be your goal for today. Instead, your goal is to glorify the Lord with all of you, all that you do. So that's what we're going to do today. You can join our conversation at any time by calling 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. And you can email me at SoCalLive at KKLA.com. It's good to be with you again for another week. And, uh, you know, I've got this question today. There are so many, there are lots of different things we can talk about. But one of the issues that is behind so many things in the news are the way we use our words, okay? So you have Salman Rushdie being attacked on Friday, and essentially him and uh, many other people over the past years, we'll talk about it in a minute, murdered because of words that were put in print. That's the reason. We have lots of people who are upset in the political world, and it's all right to say things and express your frustration with the government and all of that, but some people go too far. Some people are calling for the death of FBI agents and their families and people like that related to what happened in Florida or other things that we have seen. And uh, we it drives things a little bit to a different place. And the scriptures are full of lots of teaching about our words and how we need to be careful about them. We also have a culture, a certain part of our culture on the far left in the theory department that says the words themselves are violence. Are words violence? I mean, is that something that uh, we should actually go there? As kids, you know, we teach our kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me or names will never hurt me. Is that what we say? Uh, The thing is, is you teach your kid that so your kid will be tough. The truth is, though, is that people do hurt our feelings with words. But there's a lot of difference between being called a name or being teased or bullied, which are bad, and being physically assaulted. There is now words can lead to uh, people doing violence, but our words themselves violence. Christian, do you get offended? If you're a Christian, do you get offended when somebody attacks Christianity? You know, to the point of wanting to attack back, not just with words, but with violence, with physical violence, with attacking our enemies. Clearly not a scriptural thing to do. We don't have to anything. If I could just say anything, for us, we're believers. We do not have to sit around and be offended because somebody says something negative about our faith. We have the a faith that has been attacked for 2,000 years, and it has survived all of those attacks, okay? And uh, so instead, what we need to do is look at these things strategically. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. In the context of the Salman Rushdie stabbing that happened on Friday, are you familiar with that story? It's in the news, and uh, there was a blog posting by a writer named Barry Weiss. I know she's not a Christian writer, but she makes some really good points about words not being violence. And it's important, I think, that we understand this, that we understand the importance of our words, that we understand 
how to use them correctly in our life with each other, but also to not get caught into a world where we can't say words that need to be spoken, because ultimately the words or violence movement is not about speaking nicely to each other. It's about making sure people who don't agree with me can't speak at all. That is the goal of those who typically claim from a philosophical point of view, words are violent. They're not talking about, now sometimes they're talking about, hey, somebody was bullied or somebody said some mean things and that's bad. That's fine. We can have that conversation. But when words are violent means you can't say things that that have a different opinion than I have, or you're not allowed to say certain things. You're not allowed to have criticisms of my opinion. And that's just violence. What that is, is it's an attempt to get you to be quiet an attempt to get you to not have freedom of speech in a political sense in our country, or just the freedom to have conversation. And that is something that is very bad. From a Christian perspective, it's something that is being used against Christians so that we cannot share what we believe to be true about the gospel. This doesn't excuse Christians from saying mean and nasty things, okay? No one's allowed to do that. Jesus would not appreciate that. But We should be allowed as human beings to have dialogue and to disagree even on the harshest of things. So, you know, Christian, I ask you, do you get offended when somebody attacks our faith? Does it bother you so much that you want to slug them? Does it bother you so much that you imagine scenarios where you are some kind of great fighter or doing great violence? Or I had somebody tell me one time that they were so upset at somebody that they were praying to God that a meteor would come out of the sky and squash them. Well, I understand being that upset. I get that. But this isn't what we should do. Now, to get to the uh, Salman Rushdie thing, and you're listening to Southern California Live, I'm Scott Furrow, your host. It is, uh, you can join the conversation, 888-528-2557, if you want to add to the conversation. I don't know how many of you might be old enough to remember the Salman Rushdie episode. He wrote a novel in 1988 and it was called Satanic Verses, and it was about uh, it was about Islam in particular, particular branch of Islam. And what he claimed is that the Quran, in that book, there's several different things. It's a story and and other things. But and I've not read it myself. Maybe you've read it. But the there's a claim of blasphemy that the Ayatollah um, in Iran accused him of, and put out what's called a fatwa. A it's basically an order of death, okay, against the writer of this book. And he believes that the Quran takes quotes from a pagan god and mistakenly applies them to divine inspiration. And, of course, that would say a whole lot of things. It would say not only is part of my religious book satanic, but also fake, right? Not inspired, in an error. You know, as Christians, we, we work, most Christians believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Some people get it wrong what that means. You know, it, it doesn't mean that you're... Your NIV or your ESV or your NET or NASB doesn't have a uh, you know translation problem or error or those things. It means that whatever it was that the writers of the Bible were inspired to be saying by God, that's true. You know whatever it is that Moses meant to say is is actually true. Whatever it is that Paul was trying to get across, whatever it is that the gospel writers, the prophets, whatever they are trying to get across, is true. And that's what we would say is uh, inerrancy. So inerrancy, of course, matters because if your holy book is got you know riddled with a whole bunch of problems uh, that you can prove are not true, then it's not that much of a holy book. So you can see why that would be offensive. There are lots of books out there written against Christianity, plenty of them, uh, lots of different things out there. And what I would say to those of us who are believers is don't worry about those things. For 2,000 years, people have made claims that 
usually right away you can refute or sometimes just in time things come about in science or archaeology that actually support the scripture. They don't always support what the church says about the Bible, okay? The church used to say that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun went around the earth. And when scientists started to say, no, it doesn't really work that way, there were some people in the church who got offended and uh, some people were burned at the stake for uh, making such a suggestion. The problem is that the Bible never says that the sun goes around the earth in a uh, scientific way, and the idea that it does, and that there's a solar system, and we're the third rock from the sun, all of that, none of that is contrary to Scripture, even though at different times that was contrary to uh, religious doctrines in the church. Are Are you following me there? Like, sometimes the idea that we might have about what the Bible means can be wrong, and therefore we want to correct it, but that's different than saying that the Bible itself is wrong. So, when Salman Rushdie writes this book and it suggests very clearly that the uh, Quran is is corrupted and then even says it's satanic, you can understand why people would be upset. Even if he's right, they would be upset. So in mid-February 1989, just a few months after the book came out, following uh, a riot in uh, Pakistan, lots of book burnings and that kind of stuff, the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran at the time, he was a Shiite scholar, he issued a fatwa calling for the death of Rushdie and also his publishers. I didn't really realize that. And I was a kid at the time, and I remember the book, and I remember the attack on him and the, that he would, had to hide for his life. It was a new story. Um, the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah, c- called for all Muslims to either kill him or point him out to those who can kill him. So if you weren't up to it, you could point him out to somebody who could. All right? So... One of the reasons this is important for us as as Christians is is not right now to to get into the differences of religion, but to realize this, that a tactic today for many people who are opposed to Christianity is to try to compare Christianity to Islam every time there is violence in the name of Christ. And there has been violence in the name of Christ, and that has been recent in some ways, kind of left and right. Sometimes Jesus is involved, or there's a cross, or there's a Bible verse being used, and sometimes it's completely uh, misunderstood by all sides who are looking at it. But this matters more probably in our personal relationships with each other and the way we speak. It's why our words matter. It's why throughout the Bible there is so much about how we speak to one another. And in today's world, and what's kind of relevant with the Salman Rushdie thing is, and this is what this article by Barry Weiss points out, is that words can be very damaging. They can really hurt people. They can incite violence. They can move people to a really bad place. But words themselves are not violence. And the reason this is being said, that in the the theoretical studies out there, the applied, if you get into the philosophy of the teaching of lots of things that are going on today, we call it theory. Part of that is that words are violence. And it means words I disagree with are violence. But words are not violence. We need to keep this in mind about our faith. It can withstand scrutiny, even the scrutiny of words against it. So don't get offended if somebody is going after Christianity. Jesus himself says that this is going to happen, that people are going to hate you because of me, and you will be attacked because of me. We have talked many times on our program about martyrs around the world. Ultimately, they're being attacked really because of their words and their actions that confirm those words. 
because it might go against what somebody else thinks. But the violence itself is the violence. So one of the things that she writes that I think is very uh, interesting is she says, we live in a culture in which many of the most celebrated people occupying the highest perches believe that words are violence. This is in the higher education world and uh, very often nowadays in our political world. And she wrote this. She wrote in this, they have much in common with the Iranian Ayatollah Khomeini who issued uh, Ruhollah Khomeini, different one than the, the 1970s one, who issued the first fatwa against Salman Rushdie in 1989. Um, and the 24-year-old who appears to have fulfilled his command when he stabbed the author. Did you know this? That's the story. So all these years later, Salman Rushdie went into hiding for a long time, and he finally came out, and he's made some public appearances, but he got stabbed by somebody this weekend who apparently is trying to fulfill this fatwa. After all this time, and it's done by a 24-year-old, somebody who wasn't even born when all of this became a thing. She writes this, that the first group believes they're motivated by inclusion and tolerance, and the second is religious fanatics. But the point ultimately is that this idea, a lot of the philosophical ideas we have today that are meant to tear down the system, and in particular to tear down Christian way of thought, Judeo-Christian thinking, all of it is religion. It's not science. It's not even reality. It's essentially religion. The thing I didn't know about this uh, fatwa, and you're listening to Southern California Live, I'm Scott Furrow. You can call and join the conversation, 888-528-2557. I didn't know this. I didn't know that there were a whole lot of people who are associated with that book who have been killed over the years because of this fatwa. I thought it was just Salman Rusty. I didn't realize it was everybody. Uh, connected, all the publishers. In 1991, a Japanese translator of the book, uh, Hitoshi Igarishi, Iger, uh, uh, was 44 years old, stabbed to death outside of his office in Tokyo. The same month, the Italian translator, Ettore Capriolo, was also stabbed in his own home in Milan. Two years later, 1993, the book's Turkish translator, the prolific author Aziz Nisan, she says, was the target of an arson attack on a hotel in the city of Savas. He escaped, but 37 other people died in that attack. A few months later, they came for William Nygaard, who was the book's Norwegian publisher. He was shot three times outside of his home in Oslo and was critically injured. And those are stories that were in the news. In 1989, 12 people were killed in an anti-Rushdie riot in Mumbai, where the author was born. And uh, five Pakistanis died in Islamabad under similar circumstances. There's been a lot of death because of the words of this book. And as for Rushdie himself, he became, uh, he went into hiding. He was hidden by the British government. He took on the name Joseph Anton, which he had for a long time. He had to move 56 times. How many of you have moved 56 times? Maybe some of you are, who are in the military, you've moved a lot of times, but I'll bet not 56. I mean, that's a lot. In my life, I have not moved 56 times. Maybe I've moved 10 times or 11 times. That's it. Um, there's been a lot of violence and fear because of this book. The bounty on his head was $3.3 million. But an interesting thing that she points out is that Rushdie, who is the one who had, they've been after, he said in 2015 in the French newspaper L'Espresse, we are living in the darkest time I have ever known. And what I think is interesting about that 
and she points this out. He said that in 2015. You would have thought he would have said that in 1988 or 1989 when he went into hiding all those years he's in hiding. But instead, after he's already out, after he's kind of felt incorrectly, apparently, that maybe it had subsided, he says it in 2015. And he told that magazine, we are living in the darkest time I have ever known. And this is what he said. He said that because today we are seeing the weakening of the very Western values, the ferocious commitment to free thought and free speech that had saved his life. Because really one of the things that happened in 1988 that was a big deal is that so many people actually came to his rescue. Authors, authors like you've heard of, like Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer and people who were big names at the time, they came together and said, you know, agree or not agree with his books. Uh, we shouldn't be threatening to murder people because we disagree with something that they wrote down, because we disagree with something that they did. We should use words to, to refute those things. We can write our own book and say he's an idiot and explain why. We shouldn't call him names. Okay, I get that. And in fact, there was violence against local bookshops. All right, there was a book owner, bookshop owner in Berkeley named Andy Ross. His place was bombed because he carried the book. And this is something that he had to say. This is from 1988. It was pretty easy for Norman Mailer and Susan Sontag to write about risking their relationships in support of an idea. And he's talking about all these authors that were famous authors with a lot of money who said, no, we're still going to promote the book. We're going to carry the book. We're not going to let somebody's attack on this writer uh, we're not going to cower to that, they said. And it was brave of them, for sure. And he's, But he says it's pretty easy for them to do it. After all, they live fairly high up in their New York apartment buildings. It was quite another thing to be a retailer featuring the book at street level. I had to make some really hard decisions about balancing our commitment to freedom of speech against the real threat to the lives of our employees. And after a shop was bombed, he gathered all of his staff for a meeting. He said, I stood and I told the staff that we had a hard decision to make. We needed to decide whether to keep carrying satanic verses and risk our lives for what we believed in, free speech. He wasn't saying he agreed with a book. He was just saying that he agreed with the freedom to, to make those statements. He said, or to take a more cautious approach and compromise our values. So we took a vote. The staff voted unanimously to keep carrying the book. He says tears still come to his eyes when he thinks of all this. It was the defining moment of his life life, he said. It was the moment when I realized that bookselling was a dangerous and subversive vocation because ideas are a powerful weapon. I didn't particularly feel comfortable, he said, about being a hero and putting other people's lives in danger. I didn't know at the moment whether this was an act of courage or foolhardiness, but from the clarity of hindsight, I would have to say it was the proudest day of my life. That's a pretty good story right there. Brave thing for them to do in the wake of people actually being killed, of his, his store actually being bombed. Now, the point that's being made by this article is that that was in the late 1980s. And the reason that Salman Rushdie says things have changed, that this is the darkest time, is by 2015, America was a different place. Do you remember a few years ago, a French magazine, Charlie Hebdo, uh, published a bunch of political cartoons that were critical of Islamic terrorists, okay? And, you know, of course, this is in the wake of 9-11 and in the wake of several Islamic, uh, radical Islamic terrorism attacks throughout Europe and throughout the world at the time. 
Well, what happened to the people who wrote those is that several of them were were murdered, and it was it was pretty brutal. And what Salman Rushdie and what this article is pointing out is that in 1988, when everybody came behind, even risking their lives for Salman Rushdie, in 2015, many of the world's famous writers today, names that you might recognize, suggested that maybe they had it coming. You know, not really, it shouldn't have been done, but maybe it's kind of their fault too. With the idea that if there's something out there that, uh, that offends a certain group, maybe it just shouldn't be printed. And yes, I'm sure those cartoons were very offensive. I don't know if they were you know, accurate or not, but they were offensive. And these writers uh, said this. They said they accused the uh, National Organization of Writing Writers of valorizing selectively offensive material, material that intensifies the anti-Islamic, anti-lots-of-different-group sentiments already prevalent in the world. Rushdie responded this way, said, This issue has nothing to do with an oppressed and disadvantaged minority. It has everything to do with the battle against fanatical Islam, which is highly organized, well-funded, and which seeks to terrify us all, Muslims as well as non-Muslims, into a cowed silence. In our world today where we have things going on with that same government in Iran about whether or not they should get a nuclear weapon, and most of the world says, no, they should never get a nuclear weapon. Why? It's because we think they might use it. You have, and they might use it for religious reasons. See what I'm saying? That they might use it because they don't like something that you had to say, or they don't like, they don't like the way another society decides they're going to live their life. And what Rushdie is saying is that we've come from a place where it was okay to speak out against that to a time today when we're afraid, when maybe we won't. And the danger of that is a country like Iran actually getting a nuclear weapon where they might actually use it, which everybody kind of agrees that they might. You're listening to Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. The number, if you want to join the conversation, is 888-528-2557. 888-528-2557. We'll keep talking about this as we get back. And I'm asking the question, as Christians today, how do we respond when somebody attacks our faith or tries to write, maybe they write a book saying Christianity is not true. How should we respond to issues in the world today that maybe we take as persecution or we take as anti-Christian? Is it okay to suggest violence or do the violence? What ought we do? 888-528-2557. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. This is Southern California Live. It is Southern California Live or Southern California Alive, SoCal Live. And we'll continue as the Monday edition of our show continues. Stay tuned. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow on 99.5 KKLA. Welcome back, everybody. Southern California Live. I am Scott Furrow. It's great to be with you. You can join our conversation, 888-528-2557. We're talking about words, and in speaking of the Salman Rushdie stabbing that happened over the weekend, I reviewed what uh, that was all about, apparently what that was all about, that he wrote a book in 1988 that was offensive to a certain branch of Islam in particular, the leader of Iran, put out a fatwa against him to kill him and all the publishers, and many have died over this period of time. And he was stabbed several times this weekend. He had a knife plunged into, on a stage, a uh, knife plunged into his liver, into his arm, and into his eye. It looks like he's going to survive. But the question is, are words violence? 
And why this is, one of the things I want us to get across is that we've got to be careful with words. Word, the Bible has an awful lot to say about our words and the power of them. But there's a difference between speaking really terrible things about somebody or disagreeing with somebody and plunging a knife into their liver or their arm or into their eye. Would you agree or disagree with that? You can give me a call, 888-528-2557. Shelley in Los Angeles, welcome to Southern California Live. Yes, um, I'd like to uh, ask you, what did you think that was um, insightful to um, murder to the uh, uh, beginning of the uh, problem here in the in the states, starting with President Lincoln? What did he say? And then uh, what about uh, Kennedy what? And, and, and the the ones that followed. Are you asking me what do I think was the the reason that uh, brought those assassinations, that kind of violence? Yes, uh, to here, this country. Those are foreign countries you were speaking of. I was wondering about this country, which was uh, be founded on a, a God uh, of hearing uh, principle. So why is it happening in why is it happened in this country in for reasons that are obviously very different than what has gone on with uh, Salman Rushdie? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, you know, thank you for calling Shelley. Appreciate that. And you know what, it's a really good question. You know, why in in this case when we're talking about Salman Rushdie, we're talking about Islamic fundamentalism and the things that have gone on with that and terrorism and uh, what we typically call terrorism, okay? Lots of acts of violence are really terrorism, but uh, typically that it gets more associated with um, Islamic fundamentalism in our, our regular language. Why was it that there was violence in a country that's not related to that by, by people different? Number one, I'm going to tell you that violence has been the result of sin since the beginning, since Cain killed Abel. Uh, they, Cain was jealous of Abel. Abel had a better offering. God liked his offering better. And instead of just making a better offering, which is what he should have done, he got jealous. And instead of even just calling his, you know, wouldn't it be a different story if, if Cain was just mean to Abel, if Cain was just the older brother, like I have two boys, James and John, they're 13 and 10. And they get on each other all the time. And sometimes it does resort into a little brotherly violence, right? And I have to tell them, you're going to get your not, your your head knocked off by saying that by your brother. And, uh, you know, and I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's what happens, okay? And they'll say some things to each other that aren't kind. What if the Cain and Abel story was just, hey, God has to come down and say, you guys be nice. You guys go to your room. Cain, knock it off, go make a better offering. Abel, good job, keep it up, but don't rub it into your brother. You know, if that was the only story there, we I don't even know if we would know the story. But it's a huge story because Cain kills Abel. He murders his brother. And God comes down and he says, uh, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. My friends, sin is what leads to violence, okay? Everything sin touches dies. The reason we have violence, the reason that that's part of every culture on earth, there's always violence. And as we talk about this in the specific case of Salman Rushdie, don't think that I'm thinking that it only happens there. 
obviously we've had it in this country. And you talked about, Shelley, uh, the violence that's happened to Lincoln and uh, to Kennedy. You know, and the thing is about this violence, the violence uh, that we see, the spiritual part of the evil of, of violence is violence always changes the trajectory of maybe where history or a movement was going. Imagine if Lincoln was not assassinated after the Civil War and Reconstruction began. There's a lot of theory about it. There's a lot of people who believe that if Lincoln would have survived, if he could have lived out his term, that a lot of our history, including the the history of racism that would grow up in the next uh, 20 or 30 years with the Ku Klux Klan, eventually Jim Crow, lots of those things that a lot of that might have been abated because Lincoln's plan to reintegrate the slave into society to help people become, particularly black slaves, become educated um, would have been done better. And that all got thrown off. There was a great bitterness because of that assassination. There's a lot you can read about that. It's all speculative and it's interesting. The Kennedy assassination, many of you are alive and you remember that. And what a lot of people say is that that's the day that our country lost its innocence. And maybe it's because we saw the footage of it. Only a handful of people actually saw Lincoln get shot. It was, you know, violence changes. What happens if Kennedy doesn't get assassinated? It, I mean, it changes everything. Would Vietnam have become Vietnam. Kennedy was getting involved in Vietnam, but he certainly would have handled it differently, I suppose, or maybe, than Lyndon Johnson. It would have, it could have changed all kinds of things. Not trying to be critical of uh, LBJ here, but just saying that that violence changes things. In in you know when we talk about what happened on January sixth today, what are people talking about? They're talking about the violence that happened that day. Almost nothing else. When we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, what do people immediately go to today? The violence of it. Why do we, and not of most people, of just some, why do we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. as a nation? Why do we have a memorial of him? Why was he, there were a lot of civil rights leaders. Some of them had great things to say. And we don't hear about it very often. Well, one of the reasons we do is because he was about nonviolence. And he understood that by not being violent and expressing our grievances, we get things done because it shows the other person to be the violent one, because it shows the other person to be the one who is evil when evil is being done. See, and when when he holds a march and the government decides to uh, fire upon or turn the fire hoses on people who obviously aren't doing anything other than marching down the street. It causes everybody who's watching that to say, to ask themselves, who's the bad guy here? But see, if everybody's being violent, then everybody's the bad guy. But if somebody's not, see, this is important when we're talking about our words, when we're talking about violence. This is why Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek. He's not saying be a wimp. He's not saying that you need to just, you know, shut up and take it for your faith. He's pointing out that there's a better strategy in a lot of our social interactions, in that same passage, you know, the, the turn the other cheek passage, if you examine it, you see that the hit that somebody is giving you is the, from the back of the hand. This is because when, you're, when, you're, when you are struck on the right cheek by somebody's right hand, okay, think about it. But you're, don't do this if you're driving. But if you're at home, hold out your right hand and think about how you would strike somebody on their right cheek. Well, if you punched them, it wouldn't be a very good punch. But, and if you slapped him with an open hand, 
with the palm first, you couldn't really do that. But if you take your hand and you put it out and you really were to strike them on the right cheek with your right hand, how do you have to do it so that there's any force at all? You do it with the back of your hand. Bam. And what that is, is it's a sign of disrespect. It's a sign of saying, I'm greater than you. Okay, that's the way that a master would discipline a slave. That's the way that somebody who is trying to embarrass you or be condescending to you, that's the way they hit you, right? When you hit the other ways, it's, you know, you could still argue equality, maybe not in strength or in, you know, ultimate power. But when you hit somebody that way, uh, you're hitting them in a way that's saying, I'm better than you. So when you turn the other cheek, now think of that person and they're showing you their left cheek. How in the world would you hit their, their, uh, that cheek with your, the right cheek with your right hand? You couldn't really do it. And the same thing is when uh, somebody sues you and they want to take your, uh, your garment, give them your, your cloak too or your shirt. Well, what would be the, the vision of that is that you're being sued by a wealthier person than you. Um, and the implication is maybe it's not just – and you're standing there now naked because they're holding all of your clothes, who looks like the bad guy in that picture? In Old Testament or New Testament times, biblically speaking, the person who looks upon the naked person is worse than the naked person, which is a whole good argument for why you shouldn't be looking at pornography, if you think about that. Pornography, a sin of the eyes is what that means. Who really is the bad guy here? The person who is uh, performing the uh, pornography or the person who's watching it and paying for it? Think about that. It's a whole other subject. Uh, while go the other mile, Roman soldier was able to go another mile, was able to force you to carry his stuff for one mile, but you also had the right to drop it after that first mile. And there were mile markers. You ever see the mile markers on the freeway? Mile one, mile two, mile three. Oh, the Romans have invented that on their highways. And uh, you could go one mile and you could drop it. Well, if you go an extra mile, what's happened is is that you have done something bizarre. The soldier doesn't understand why you're doing that. You don't have to, and it changes something. It, it puts that evil practice, and it is an evil practice, to force somebody to just carry your stuff if you are uh, a soldier. Um, it forces that person to consider the evil of what they're doing. Now, if you just turn around and you hit the soldier. You turn around and do violence against the one who hits you and other things. And you have to put this in in the context. Jesus is not saying don't defend yourself if somebody's attacking you. Okay, the context is um, when you are being condescended to, when there is something very unjust here. The idea is that in all of these examples is that through nonviolence, you show who the actual perpetrator of sin is. That's what Martin Luther King taught. That's why he was successful. That's why we got statues. That's why we know the quotes. Uh, Violence is always something that is not something that we should resort to. Now, I'm not talking about when a government has to go to war. Clearly, we needed to go to World War II, and we needed to fight that. You know, there are times, and biblically speaking, you can make those arguments. That's why you have Romans 13, and you have uh, lots of things in there, okay? But we're talking about interpersonal relationships here. i got to take a break. If you want to join our conversation We're talking about words and the violence of words, how we should use our words. 888-528-2557 is the number, 888-528-2557. You're listening to Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. I'll be back as the Monday edition of SoCal Live continues. You're listening to SoCal Live with Scott Furrow on 99.5 KKLA.
Welcome back, everybody. Monday afternoon, good to be with you, 888-528-2557. If you want to join the conversation, we're talking about our words and how we can use them in a better way. And in particular, in this time where there are so many things being said that are are pretty bad. All right, there's, uh, you know, with all that's going on in uh, Florida and uh, the aftermath of the the raid on uh, Donald Trump's house, and I don't think we're going to know a lot of details, real details. There's a lot of reports. You know, don't, don't be confused with reports versus what actually is happening. Sometimes the reports have nothing to do with what actually happens. And even the things that get released, like a warrant, warrants looking for things, but doesn't mean that they found them or what they mean. We don't really know. There's a lot that we don't know. One of the issues, though, and it is, it's an important one, is that we have to be careful about the, the rhetoric. If you are angry at the FBI or you're angry at the government or you're angry at Donald Trump or whoever you're angry with, you know, the rhetoric in our words, it says something about us and it says something about you know, it can really cause a lot of problems. So some people are saying today, we need to ratchet it down. Now, a lot of, I think, what people are saying is fine. It's fine to criticize the government, and it is fine to ask a lot of questions. People on both sides are asking a lot of questions about what went down and why, and I think we need to know a lot more than what we actually know at this point. That's that's fine. And there are reasons that people are upset and questioning the authorities, uh, in this manner, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, had this to say today about that and why people are raising questions. I remember the FBI at Merrick Garland's direction being sicked on parents going to school board meetings. Meanwhile, when you have a law that protects Supreme Court justices, is the FBI out there protecting our conservative justices? No. When you have violations of law where people are targeting pregnancy crisis centers, are they doing their job and enforcing the law there? No. They're enforcing the law based on who they like and who they don't like. Now, that's his opinion, of course, but that is the reason that many people are questioning the political motivations of the Department of Justice. But And I think that's fine. It's fine to make those statements. It's fine to come out and uh, defend them in a civil society. We should be able to do this. And this is where it gets into the words or violence thing. If you don't agree with Mr. DeSantis, that's fine. And you have the right to say why you don't agree. But I don't think he's doing violence by pointing out why people feel the way they feel. However, there are people... And hopefully it's not Christian people, okay? And I've read some of this online that are calling for the assassinations of government officials and the murder of FBI agents and, you know, a whole lot of, you know, kind of horrific violence, which, which as we've been trying to make the point here, it usually does not have the effect that you think it's going to have. It usually discredits the person doing the violence, you see. And we are hearing... You know, some people, I guess President, uh, former President Trump, supposedly, and I don't know if this is true, but supposedly he asked Merrick Garland, is there something he can do to try to re- reduce the heat? Okay. And people are accusing him of all kinds of things on all sides. Um, on Fox News uh, this morning, Steve Ducey was talking about this. He said this. You know, with all of these 
threats going around. It would ultimately be great if the former president, who has always been a great supporter of law enforcement, had posed with a thousand police departments coast to coast. It would be great if he called for an end to the violent rhetoric against federal law enforcement, and in particular, the FBI that was just doing their job. Uh, that's what he had to say here. So and when he says the FBI is just doing a job, the context of it is the the people who go in and are just doing what they're asked to do. They don't know what they're looking for and all of that. And I suppose people can argue differently. But the the biggest problem is the language that's being used that say we need to do personal harm and the unfairness that is here where what uh, Governor DeSantis was saying is that there are people who have threatened Supreme Court justices and not a lot was done. Uh, eventually, they did approve more security for them. I didn't realize it, but they have – the justices have security, but their families didn't. I guess their families are going to have better security now. People go into the homes of these people, and we've seen some of this. We've seen – you know, the argument is that when the left is doing it, it doesn't get the same criticism. And I understand that. I would say that that's true out there. Um, and, you know, this is why when the, when the right does it, it takes the spotlight off of the left, and when the left does it, it takes a spotlight on the right. This is where nonviolence works, right? If you stop it, uh, then you can spend more time shining the light on those who are doing the violence. When everybody's doing it, it's not going to work. And the words that we use matter greatly. Here's one of the things that I'll just stay with us. You can join our conversation anytime. By the way, this is Southern California Live. 888-528-2557 is the number. In the Bible, our words are not depicted as as violence, but they can do a lot of harm. The tongue is depictive of what you are, basically what comes out of your mouth, or I think what comes out of your typing fingers if you're putting it on your social media today. And especially you know, some of the stuff that's out there that's dark is is very scary, and it's not going to help. We need to have the type of words that we use that are that are gracious, truthful, but gracious. Jesus was gracious with words falling from his lips, even when he was pointing out somebody's sin, even when he was yelling at the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and calling them a brood of vipers. He was for a long time very fair about this. And for the Christians in this world that I think is breaking down in so many ways, some ways deliberately, when we get into the the issue that we started off the hour talking about with theory, the the problem with the, the critical theory crowd, and there's multiple different areas of that, is that in most cases, what ultimately is happening is the tearing down of every system of every way of looking at things um, with nothing to replace it with that makes any sense. So all you end up with is rubble. And that's why in practical sense, when you have policies that are enacted um, that are based upon the not reality of some of the things that are said about gender and some of the things that are said about um, knowledge. I mean, there's, there's critical knowledge theory with the idea that the way some people do research is wrong just based on who they are, not the methods they're using. And it gets real complicated. But whenever you, you act upon that, then you have disaster. We don't want to go there. But as, as Christians, we need to make sure that we're speaking well. I'm going to go to Dan here in Orange County. Dan, welcome to Southern California Live. Hi. I'm going to talk to you. 
Yeah, um, I, this thing is uh, totally hip- hypocritical in that I remember during 2020 the um, nonstop attack on law enforcement and uh, the media heaped on uh, in terms of criticizing law enforcement and didn't defend when when the innocent cops were being attacked. You had a few bad cops certainly up in Minneapolis mm-hmm. and that, but 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 overall, law enforcement was being attacked all across the country. So they took one uh, example there and they extrapolated to the whole country, and they were silent on the attack on law enforcement and that. And then I remember the January sixth hearing, and that all of a sudden. They, they brought these police. I think they gave them the Medal of Honor. They gave them all kinds of medals for defending the Capitol. All of a sudden, they were pro-police um, uh, then when it had to do with a right-wing mob. Well, I think that's a lot of the right-wing mob. That's a lot of the frustration, right? That's what uh, people on the right are saying is that, hey, uh, you're not treating it the same. Yeah, there's no equal treatment under the law. There's right. discrimination against police officers all across the country. But then when... When they're fighting a right-wing right on January 6th, then all of a sudden, oh, you know, where's the condemnation from the right about this attack on yeah. police officers and all that? Dan, I've got, to, I've, got to, I've got to go to a break here. It's a hard break, but I'll try to continue your point as I close, close off here. Um, one, of the, oh. one of the reasons it's so important, I think, on the, the violence conversation we're having is because – and Dan's right. I would say that it's, it has been unfair coverage, okay, that has gone on. That's – the way the media has been for a long time, okay? But when one side who might be the side who receives the unfair coverage decides to do violence, that what they need to know is that it's going to get the attention. And this is why we should not be doing violence. In our own personal life, When see, when, when all sides are violent, it skews everything. It just, it's a mess. When only one side is, eventually the hypocrisy comes forward. I think people know that hypocrisy. I think they see that. I think people... Regular, regular people see that. I think the danger, though, in our society is that people on uh, the the fringes are leveraging that to their advantage. And that's a, a dangerous thing. We're out of time. And to get into that a little bit more uh, makes a lot of sense. We'll do that on another show. Uh, thanks for your call, Dan. You're listening to Southern California Live. I am Scott Furrow, your host. We are going to be back in just a minute for hour two of uh, the Monday edition of Southern California Live. We'll be back as the Monday edition continues. Stay tuned. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.